Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are loved. I want to go ahead and, and I'm, I'm going to share a message and I want to continue with this theme of we are open. We are open. Um, obviously, the opposite of open is closed. And imagine me standing up here and saying, hey, everyone, we're closed. Um, though we've never said that from the first day that this pandemic had hit. We never said we're closed. We, we did whatever we could and we used the best of our ability, the language to make sure that everyone heard that though we're not uniting, we're still going to remain open to the best of our ability and not close. But if you've been so f- distant, so separated from one another for so long, you're recognizing that a FaceTime call just doesn't do it anymore. There's the beautiful thing from being together in the same presence, uh, together with one another in the, under the same roof. And um, I just want to continue with this theme, We're Open, and today's title under this is The Vital Church. And I believe that we are the vital church, and we are to be the vital church. We are to be just that. We are very important in this whole issue. And um, I, I just, it's a, it's a great, it's, a, it's really, it's crazy because most of my messages, if not all of my messages, none of them really look like this one that I want to share with everyone today. Um, this, I, I, I use the word conversation, you know, let's, and sometimes I come down here on a Sunday and we talk and we have conversations. Sometimes we even pass the mic around in the middle of a message. But this one feels like it would be a conversation rather than a form of teaching or even a preaching. This is a, 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 a lot of thoughts written down that probably if we would sit down and have a cup of coffee together, these are things that maybe we would talk about in dialogue. And, um, I, and I just pray it does something uh, to us, to our hearts, and deep to our spirits. And I pray that we're blessed by it. Any time that we could get into the heart of God, um, we're blessed. Um, have you ever sat with someone and just had conversations of the things of God and you just leave there edified? You leave there filled, and it's because you were speaking of the things of the Lord. I, I think about when the Lord was, was walking with the disciples down the road after his resurrection, and they said our hearts burned when he spoke to us. And it was uh, because the word of God was being spoken in the opening conversation. And I think that that does something to the believer as it encourages and strengthens us. And I, I want to get into this and, and just hopefully your hearts are prepared and, and that you wake up in the morning and you're in prayer and you're, and you're not just rushed and stressed to now sit down and hear. And sometimes it's harder for the word to land like that because now it has to fight all these things that you just sat with rather than preparing yourself to receive um, from the Lord. But let's get into this and just have some, some awesome talk here. Um, as we look at the church and as we talk about we're open, I, I, I'm going to say this a, a, maybe a couple times throughout this time together, and it's this, that the church has always played a vital role, and, and, and especially a vital role in its community. The church has always played a, a vital role, and I believe that it's the Lord's intention for it to always be that and so much more. Um, in Acts chapter 2, we, we always tend to go there when we look at the church, especially the early church and the birth, the origin of the early early church in a sense. And, and the early church we see there in Acts 2, uh, Jesus at this moment had, had already ascended. And the Holy Spirit, it falls and it empowers the believers on Pentecost. And Peter at this moment begins to preach and thousands of people uh, the scripture says about 3,000 people repent and they turn to Jesus right here in Acts 2 before our eyes and then the early church now is birthed and and the gospel begins to spread rapidly and what we see is that now many become followers of Christ many becomes fo- um, become followers of his teachings and they would soon be called those of the way. That, that's what they would be called. We see that later on in the book of Acts. And, 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 and it's those of the way. And these were the ones of the way of Christ. Um, they did not necessarily have a name um, for their so-called religion. 
or, 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 or anything like that. This is just, this group is from the way. And that's what they would call them. But I want to get into this because we must understand that this is a very important, uh, this is very important uh, during this time of history. Um, it all starts, it all begins right here in this place called Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, it takes flight from there. And we're going to get back to this in a moment. We're going to jump right back to Acts 2. But, but as we transition into Jerusalem and where all of this starts, it's important to understand Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem was a very complex place. And, and for many of you that have gone to Jerusalem, um, and if you went with us in any of our trips, you'll notice that it still is a, a very complex place. But yet with different components than in the time of Jesus. Uh, Jerusalem in Jesus' time was under Rome's power. So, so Rome's, influence, <clears throat> Rome's influence was heavy, and the fear of Rome and of Caesar was obviously present in Jerusalem. So those that ruled over them um, had different policies. Those that ruled in Jerusalem and over those Jerusalemites and, and uh, those in uh, the, the Jewish people, they had different policies, they had different religions, they had different views. See, the Jewish people, for instance, they, 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 they believed in one God, monotheism. They, they believed in, in one God where the Romans believed in many gods, polytheism and, and many deities and, and, and other, many more things. And we don't have to get into all of that. So there was already like, there was already this issue, you know, the, the Jewish people were so fixed in their beliefs and, and in their law and in the way they, in their culture. And then here they are governed by Rome and Rome is just like acceptable to everything. And Rome is just such a pagan and uh, carnal people during this time. But it doesn't mean that in Jerusalem within their very own, they weren't either. They actually were. Because within their very own camp, uh, Judaism itself was divided into different groups. You had the Pharisees, and you had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, and you had the Zealots. And then you had this newly growing group called the Jesus Movement. And that was happening as well in Jerusalem. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Think about the hotbed of what Jerusalem was. You had all these different groups that were part of Judaism. And then there arises this man whose following is massive. We know that because he fed 5,000 one day. And as, you, as we study that, we recognize that it's 5,000 in groups, not necessarily 5,000 in attendance, where it could have been anywhere from 15 to 20. If you can have 20,000 people not following you on Instagram, but following you from one city to another, man, there is something going on with that individual. And Jesus had a massive following. So, so all of this stuff was going on in Jerusalem. And then within these groups, it was complicated. And it made the whole dynamic of Jerusalem so much more complex. For example, I didn't mention these guys, but you also had the scribes. And the scribes were most likely part of the Pharisees. And, and you also had another group that we didn't talk about called the Nazarenes, for example. And I don't want to get into what every single belief and what every single difference is. Who are the ones that believe in the resurrection? Who are the ones that did not believe in the resurrection? Who are the ones that, that were... I mean, every single one was so distinct from the other. They were, they were slightly... Some were slightly different beliefs. Others were just extremely um, different and out there. Um, especially those like the Zealots. The Zealots were an interesting group because they were passionate for their God. And they were passionate for liberty. And what they would do was they would act on, on the behalf of God. Who does it sound like today, right? And they would punish. And they would kill. And they would root out all offenders who were a threat to their God. It sounds still like that spirit is alive in our land today, doesn't it? And then some of them were even famous for doing their killing with a dagger. They would kill with a dagger. Josephus, the historian, writes about these zealots and he describes them as a bunch of bandits and robbers. So, so, so just think about Jerusalem. We're not talking about, like, we're talking, like uh, the reason why I'm drawing this picture is because this is Jerusalem of Jesus' day. Some people today will say, oh man, 
you know, doing ministry is hard. Serving those kind of people, serving them, serving the church, it's impossible. It's impossible with certain people. And we have to quickly remind them this. Well, it wasn't easy for Jesus either. It was, it was very difficult. His, his scene was very difficult. The situation around the ministry of Christ, the life of Christ, was um, dangerous, um, difficult, and um, it was something to really look into and, and marvel. And then daily, here's Jesus, he had to face all of these groups that I just mentioned. These religious groups wanted him, eventually they, they wanted him dead. Rome eventually wanted him dead. So Jesus was to do ministry among people, among people which he was on their most wanted list. When Jesus would teach and visit different cities and regions, he was teaching before people who many were already influenced by some of these beliefs. And not only were the crowds already influenced by some of these beliefs, so Jesus had to kind of um, uh, wash their brain and re-brainwash them, in a sense, to get that brainwashing and all the generations of teachings out of them. But not only was he speaking to the crowds, but, but Jesus also, as he would speak to the crowds, he also had to speak with this very with these very groups that were within the crowd. Some of them were purposely um, standing there amongst the crowd, and, and some of them were purposely hiding within the crowd. We know that because at one point, some of them were sent to arrest Jesus and bring them back to the Pharisees, and they came back empty-handed, and they said, where is he? Did you not bring him to us? And they're like, we've never heard a man speak as he speaks. And he says, have you too become one of his followers? And we need to remember that within that crowd, there were people that actually had a contract to take him and arrest him to go ahead and maybe start the illegal trial to have him killed. I mean, these, this is Jesus' time. This is Jesus' time. And, and he had all of these people in his crowds. And, and, you know, I started to think about that. And I said, here are people that he's speaking to who have already been influenced. And here are the influencers themselves in the crowds. Think about that. For, think about what I just said there. And I looked at the life of Christ, and this is what I said. This is where many can be and will be tested. This is where many can be and will be tested. This is where the preacher or even a pastor or a leader will play it safe so that the crowd would like him. We don't need the crowds to like us. We need to be obedient to God. And the difference between Jesus and everyone else is, is I'm not here for you to like me. I'm here to show you the love of the Father and to obey and live in obedience towards him. And that's, a, that's powerful because when you look at the life of Christ, and I, and I believe that we are in this moment in our world today. This is the place where people play it safe. Play it safe so that he would be invited to come preach again. So that he would want to be accepted by the crowds and they would want to hear from him again. They would, this is the place where... The person would play the crowd and the different groups in it so that that person can remain popular and could be spoken well about. But Jesus never lived for the crowd's approval. He never did anything to please Rome's government or the religious leaders that were closely watching him. But he preached and he taught with such grace and yet such power in a way that no one in the crowd had ever heard before. Even if at the moment that he was speaking it, they didn't fully understand it or they fully disagreed. They still recognize something is different with the way that this man ministers. And until it was the father's time, they couldn't put a hand on him. They would go to arrest him, and he would sneak out of the crowds. We've read those stories in the scripture. He kind of how did he how did he just get snuck to, out of the crowd? How did how did how did that happen? It wasn't the moment yet. 
I mean, and he would do this, and, 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 he, and what were the things that he would do? It was something that they've never seen, and, and he would heal the sick, and he would cast out demons, and he would raise the dead, and he would turn water into wine, defying the laws of physics itself, and he would challenge the beliefs of religions and philosophies that were represented in the crowds. He was daily challenging them, daily poking at their heart. There is no way that you're in the word of God, in the presence of God, and you think, well, everything is lovely, and you don't have a sense of feeling the poke of God deep in your heart at times. I come to say, are you in the presence of the Lord? If the poking and if the gut and the, and the, and the stirring and the, and the ground that is being just mowed and moved by his hands and the marring. I'm wondering if you feel that sometimes in a daily, sometimes in certain areas, certain moments of your life. But here is Jesus with the crowd and he's doing things and saying things that they've never seen. He would, he would look into the crowds that were influenced by Pharisees, by the Pharisees, with the Pharisees also in attendance. And he would look at them in the eyes but with such a love and with such a sternness, he would rebuke them. He would rebuke them. He would rebuke the crowds or he would rebuke the Pharisees. He would rebuke the Pharisees in front of the crowd. He would rebuke the crowds in front of the crowds. He would rebuke one. He would rebuke his very own disciples in front of the crowds. Don't you ever tell one of those children to not come to me. And he was constantly teaching and correcting It's a beautiful thing. He would do that. He would challenge them. And every Pharisee, as he would challenge the crowds and every Pharisee, and what was he challenging them? To take their religious, self-righteous masks off and repent and follow and truly know God and submit to me is what he was saying and to my teachings. That's what he was doing. I want to make sure you understand this. See, Jesus was not just coming to the world to save it. How many of you think that Jesus was just coming to the world to save it? We know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only one unique son, right? So that all believe in him and that shall not perish. We know that passage, but Jesus did not just come to this earth to save the world and sinners from their sin. What was Jesus also doing in his day in Jerusalem? Something that I think ministers to us. Something that is teaching us something. And, and, and what he was doing was not just saving it from sin, but he came to tear down the systems that were built by man. That were not giving glory and honor to the Lord. Perfect example is one day he's in the temple. It's the house of prayer. It's the place to give offering. It's the place to bring praise. It's the place of thanksgiving. And he looks around and he recognizes these people have made the house of God. They've made it into what? Anyone here know? A den of thieves. And he's filled with such anger of indignation that he makes a whip of cords and he flips over the tables of all the money changers and all the offerings fly everywhere. You could hear the bleeding of the sheep. And you could see money flying and Jesus with a whip. And he rebukes and corrects the crowd, calls them for what they are, and proclaims what this should be. It should be a house of prayer. What is he doing? You've made this a man's system to make money. And you didn't make this about heaven and heaven's system. Last week I preached on James chapter 1 and I said to be slow to speak, be quick to hear, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's a very important scripture for the moment that we're living in. Because we don't live in the system of this world. And we don't do what the rest of the world does. And just because the rest of the world is saying the same thing, we don't say the same thing. We are the sons and daughters of God who need to be very careful before we open our mouth. And we need to say, am I hearing from the Lord before I ever say a word? Man, that's very important. We are sensitive and we hear from the Lord. Why? Because we are operating under his system, the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Amen? And he wasn't coming to save it, but he was coming to 
tear down these things that, that would control and bring fear and even what? Make them very rich. Systems put in place that would make them look godly. But they were rooted in their core. They were rooted in ungodliness. It made them look godly. They walked and they needed to be treated as if they were these godly people. They needed to be honored like if they were just a little bit closer to God. And in reality, the Lord was going to expose them and say they have the form of godliness. But in their core, in their core, they are filled with ungodliness. What does he call the religious leaders? He says, you're what? You're whitewashed tombs with dead man's bones. You are... You give the appearance of, of, of beauty and of godliness. But when we open up that beauty inside to the core, there is the stench of death. That's, that's big and this is powerful because this is what he was going to confront. This is who he was going to speak to. And here we are, 2020, and it's almost as if that word is still relevant, it's still speaking, and it's still being heard today where he's saying, I see the form of godliness, but when I open it inside, there's dead man's bones. The stench of dead. The stench of death. It was what Paul was writing to Timothy. As he warns them that in these end, in the end of time, there's going to be deception in the last days. There's going to be ungodliness in the last days. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, but you can in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but in verse 5 specifically to go ahead with the same wordage that Jesus is going to speak towards the Pharisees. Paul says to Timothy, they have the form of godliness. They have the appearance, appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Can you imagine having the appearance of godliness but yet denying its power i believe god heals but you don't dare to lay your hands to pray healing over somebody you, i believe that god does miracles but you don't have the, the 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 courage to walk out with the miracle worker and see how he could do a miracle through you See, we could, we could have the form of godliness and the knowledge of godliness, but we forget the operation of godliness in our lives. We are a vital people that we're not just to have the form. We need to have the deep roots and inside we should be more alive than what the outside man even looks like. And Jesus was confronting these people. Jesus was doing this because he knew that thousands of years down the road, the people, yeah, maybe they won't be called Pharisees, but the same spirit upon the Pharisees will still be in the church. And he needed to constantly speak into them. And this is what Jesus was doing. Paul, after Jesus' death and resurrection, is writing to Timothy, his spiritual son, and he says, stay away from them. Because they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. I don't understand how someone can know the word of God, but then when you start to speak about the power of God, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they say, no, 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 that's not for today. And you can't really believe in that stuff, in the power of God. How dare they have the form of godliness but deny its power? We have the power of God in us. How can someone say that? That's blasphemous. No, it's not. Why can you say that? Because he is alive in me. And if the spirit of Christ is in me, the spirit of Christ operates through me. And that's how we are. That's who we are. We are open and the church should be vital during this age. Very important during this time we are. We're not to have the form of godliness, but deep down inside, we, we lack and we deny its power by our lack of faith, by our lack of wanting to do what God has called us to do. The, you know what Paul does? Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey, from those kind of people, pray for them. Hey, for those kind of people, have like some grace over them. Imagine if we took the word of God serious. Imagine if we took Paul's word serious. You know what Paul says? From such, avoid them. <laughs> from such, Turn away. It depends what translation you read. New King James says turn away. ESV says avoid such people. <laughs> Don't fellowship with those who have the form of godliness but deny its power. I mean, you read that and what is Paul doing to telling to Timothy? What is he speaking to the church? What is Jesus speaking to the crowds? 
Jesus was tearing down, as Paul in his writing is tearing down, as Christians alive today are tearing down. That's what we should be doing. Jesus was tearing down what? Well, so much, but sin, yes, sin, absolutely. Death, yes, death, 100%. That is the, that is the root of it all, yes. But he's tearing down the religious elite. He's tearing down their agenda to control and have power over people. Those that lived a hypocritical life, fattening, fattening themselves with earthly riches by keeping a tight grip on the very ones that they led. Handing out harsh rebukes constantly to bring fear and to control them while they themselves lived in self-righteousness filled with the pride of life. That's who Jesus was confronting. You self-righteous pigs who have such a tight grip on man to govern and lord over them so that they could obey you rather than obey God. Many people in positions are like that. And high positions can turn into that. And here's Jesus. And what was Jesus? He was a threat to all in the land. He was a problem to Rome and he was a problem in Jerusalem. You know where else Jesus was a problem? He went back home to visit home with his with his band of brothers one day. You know what his very own flesh and blood brothers told him? Hey, why don't you take your group and leave here? We're good at home. Moms, we're, we're okay. His very own brothers rejected him during his earthly ministry. Later on, we see some of them write some of the letters in the New Testament. Later on, we see one of them become the president, if you want to call it that, of the Jerusalem Council of the early churches. But what I'm trying to say is, during Jesus' time and Jesus' life, his very own brothers had a hard time believing in him. He was a threat. How many of you remember that Easter, like two, three years ago, when I preached about the threat among us and the threat within us? He was a threat to all the land, a threat in Rome, a threat in Jerusalem. Why was Jesus such a threat? Because many claimed to be king, but he alone was the king. Jesus was king. And Jesus was the king in Rome, and he was, and, 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 and he was the king of Jerusalem. He was the king of Rome. He was the king of, of, of pieces of land that weren't even seen yet. And what I'm trying to tell you is Rome and these in Jerusalem were not going to have that because what he was doing was he was disrupting the religious powers that were in place to keep order those that were agreeing to work alongside with them in Rome as Judaism was siding and coming alongside Rome. As long as you let us do this and we'll give, you, we'll give you a percentage, we'll pay our taxes. And they fell under the Roman rule. But instead, he made things get out of whack before them, which then became a problem to the Roman officers. And he was careful how he did it because one day they asked him, who do we give our money to? And with wisdom, he says, you give to God. What belongs to God? And you give to Caesar. What belongs to Caesar? Very important. But yet, he was not just focusing on the external things. He was getting deep into the heart of the problem, the root issues of what was really going on with, Romans, with Rome's rule, with the religious elite of Judaism in Jerusalem that were leading the people that he was setting free from this oppression of religion, he was a problem. He was a problem. And they knew that he was a problem to them because they would lose power, because he was teaching against them. He was working signs. He was working wonders. He was working miracles. And if you study the gospel, the following of Jesus Christ began to grow rapidly. How would they shut him without committing a crime? It was impossible for them to do. And for them to shut him, they had to commit a great crime. And finally, as we know, what happens? They execute. And they execute Jesus. And everyone now takes, a, and I know I'm not getting in depth with all the details, but everyone now takes a deep breath, a deep sigh of relief here. Jesus is done. The movement ends today. He's dead. I love that in the middle of the day when the sun is at its brightest, the whole earth begins to quake. All of Jerusalem becomes dark as night. 
And one of the very own Roman guards that are at the feet of Jesus says what? Surely we have killed the Son of God today. <laughs> He's like, what did we just do? The signs, earth is crying out that we killed its creator. Many thought the movement ended, but I believe that that Roman guard went back home and said, hey, that no- nothing ended. What I just experienced through his death was something surreal. I've, I've, I've put many people on the cross, but I've never seen the earth cry the way it cried when this man took his last breath. There was something. I believe that's what happened with the Roman guard. There was something that happened with this man that had never happened with any other man before him. Doesn't, doesn't follow his story. I'm wondering if that man became a follower and, he, and, and ran to the disciples and said, I, I need to accept that Jesus that I just put on that cross. It's a good thing to think about. Then less than two months later, the movement is over. It's been quiet in Jerusalem. But less than two months later, they hear about a group a group of individuals that met together in an upper room. They hear about this group, that they preached the gospel outside of this room, the gospel of Christ, and they began to baptize over 3,000 people into this teaching and trust of Jesus Christ. And now a movement like they've never seen begins to spread and will spread. And they thought that they killed the leader of the group. So the group has to die if the leader is dead. But what they forgot was, and little did they know, that was by killing him, many now would be born from it. Why? Because scripture says, and Jesus warned them, the day that I fall to the ground, out of me, many more will come out of me. If they would have heard the words that Jesus was saying, they would have never put him in the ground. You know what Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 24? Here it is. Actually, before we read that, what's happening here? As many now are being born from his killing, what's happening is it's multiplying, it's fortifying, and it's establishing a church, a bride. It's establishing a body, such a vital place where I want to go today as, as we go to the, as we hit the ending later on. But it's multiplying, fortifying, and it's establishing a church, a bride, a body, what I will call today an organism that as much as man tries to destroy it, they will never succeed. By trying to diminish this organism, it just causes it to grow ever more stronger. And you know what happens here in John chapter 12? Verse 24, Jesus warns them. And here's his exact words. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Verse 25, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. And verse 26, Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. But notice what he's saying. Listen, uh, church, the, the, this theme, right, this, this series that we're on, we are open, we're open, and, 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 and we're going to get into John 12, but think about this, we're open, we're open, and what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive and to dare to pray big prayers. What what a time to stand before impossibilities and believe in the faithfulness of our miracle worker. That the grain of wheat, as we see in Jesus' very own words, and then we see it unfold in real life through his death, that a grain of wheat has fallen to the ground, just as he says in John chapter 12. And as this grain of wheat falls to the ground, it does not remain alone forever. What happens eventually is it begins to produce much more grain. And there is growth from the death of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he'll prove his deity when 500 more and very some of his very close disciples and historians will write, not only did he die and they buried him and they put him in Joseph's tomb, but on the third day it is known that he resurrected and he appeared before many. And his deity was established in concrete, I am God. I am God. And, and, and what's so important is he warns 
all of his following. He warns the crowds, but they weren't listening. That is why we say that in this church, in this family, and that is why we always repeat what Jesus says. That is why he tells the crowds always, he who has ears, let him hear. Because if those who were in the crowds had ears to hear, they would have already known about what was going to happen. What a time this was, and what a time it is today. He says what? Those who love their lives in this world. What does he say? That those who love their lives in this world will what? Will lose it. And you think, man, that's harsh, Jesus. You would think like you gave us this world. You want us to love our lives in this world. <clears throat> and I, I wrote this down. I want to read it the way I wrote it. I pray that none of us have loved our lives in this world as such that it's robbing us from greater desires and encounters in him. Because if it has, and it's robbed us from greater in him, then we've loved our lives in this world so much that we're missing out on the purpose of why we're even in this world. And that is why Jesus says, those who love their lives in this world, they will lose it. But it's considered as hatred when it's compared to the world that is becoming greater alive in you. Heaven becoming alive in you. The world of God becoming alive of you. That the world within you does something so powerful that it has nothing compared to the world around you. Jesus is warning his followers of this. He says something similar to this in Luke 14. And many people have always asked the question of what this passage means. In Luke 14, 26 and 27, he says something like this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother. How many of us have read this passage before? Does not hate his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is speaking with the same heart that is spoken right here in the book of John chapter 12. In comparison, the world within you, what God is doing, it's nothing compared to the world and to the life around you. I hope that you're sitting there and you're saying, Amen. And if you're not, that you would desire and seek greater encounters within you. So that then, the world around you would have greater purpose. John chapter 12, 26, just to go back to that for a moment. He goes on, he says this, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. I like that. I like that a lot. Because we've been tricked that everyone who wants to serve me must come up to the altar and repeat this prayer after me. And then we go ahead and we say, 20-something got saved today during service. And the reality is, no one got saved if they're not following him. No one got saved if they're not following him. I don't care how many prayers you said or what prayer you said. A, repeating after me did not put your name in any book in heaven. But what's beautiful about this, he says, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. That's the difference. That's, that's a powerful thing. And he says, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. What, what does um, John 12 remind you of? Does, does John 12 remind anyone of John 10? When in John 10, verse 27, 28, and 29, he says something that is very similar to what he's saying two chapters later. He says in John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29, my sheep, what? Hear my voice. Look what I just read. He says, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. John 12, 26. Because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. John 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What is a sheep of the shepherd? It's the one who what? Follows him. It's that. It's the one who follows him. Verse 28. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Notice the word snatch twice. What is he trying to show you? Security. Kept. He's trying to show you. You are forever safe in the hand of God. See, what do you hear when you read this pa these passages like John 12, like John chapter 10? What is it that you hear when you read these passages? I'm just going to share a little bit of my heart as I was studying this this week. Here are the things that I hear. I hear that we are the sheep of his pasture. And we're not led by the opinions or the voices of this world. 
but we hear his voice. We are led different than any other person in this world. We are led carefully by our shepherd. So we must listen carefully and we must learn to sit and truly know his voice. I can't think of a time where people are listening to so many voices but missing the true voice of God. People are acting out even out of anger and not acting out on God's heart. And many would even call themselves Christian. We need to make sure that we are the sheep of his pasture, that we're led by the voice of God. We are vital, we are important, and we are open for the world to see. That's what I hear. I also hear that we are secure, that he holds us in his hands, that the Father has given us to his Son. We're given to Christ as his beloved. And no one can snatch us from the Father's hand. We are his because we have, God, we have given ourselves to his Son. And the Father says, if you're my sons, then you're mine. And the Son says, if you're my fathers, then you're mine. It's a perfect picture of unity and how together we are his and the Father holds us in his hands. That's what I hear. I also hear that he's working and that he's working in us a greater love. A, great, a greater love than any other that is preached in this world. One so strong towards him, unparalleled to anything or anyone else that we may say that we, that we can say that we love. It is a love that causes us, what does he say in the text? A love that causes us to bear up our own cross and come after him. How many people will come to the Lord and say, Lord, I love you. He says, pick up your cross. And he says, ah, I love you, but come on. You're not going to really ask me to bear up my cross, are you? He says, no, if you love me, you bear up your cross and you follow me. That's a powerful statement because it shows us as well that it's a relationship. It shows us that each one in the relationship has a duty, has a responsibility. The Lord's like, I picked up my cross. You pick up your cross. We pick up the cross and we follow each other. You follow me. As I lead, you follow me. And that's a beautiful thing, and that's what I'm hearing. We love him so much that he, that love says, there is no other joy that I have than to bear up my own cross and come after him. What I hear is that we are open, and we're open. We're open and we're available to be the greatest move of God that this earth has ever seen. I have conversations with people, and you could see fear bubbling up. Some people, the fear is not bubbling up. It's pouring out already. And you hear the fear and you hear the tremble and you hear the confusion. But sometimes they forget that they are in this world, but they're not of this world. So though the world is bringing fear, my world is bringing peace. Though the world is bringing disorder, my world is bringing order. We need to recognize that if we are the sheep of his pasture, we operate by a different set of rules. We operate by a different voice. We follow a different man. That box that's on my wall that I turn on, that thing is not my God. And those people are not my experts. I'm telling you that in the presence of God, within the presence of the Holy Spirit, I have found my expert. And there is the voice of God that this soul and this ear needs to hear. We need to be very careful in the days we live in. It could get better. It could get worse. We need to get better. This is what I hear. I hear that we're open and we're available to the greatest move of God that this earth has ever seen. Listen to this. Not accomplished by any agendas. Look how simple this is. Not accomplished by any agendas, but solely on our love and devotion to Jesus that will preach and can transform every life that we lived before. Right there, I pray that if you're here or if you're listening, that all the weight comes off you and says, wait a minute, I don't have to focus so much on creating all these things right now. I have to focus on being made so alive in his love and that that love would penetrate every person that I lived before and that would be the powerful work of Christ amongst everyone. What does that mean to you today? Let's have that conversation. Call me throughout the week. I would love to chat with anyone about that. I said in the beginning that the church 
has always played a vital role in the community. I believe it's the Lord's intention, I said, to always be that and much more. I believe that we're open. And I want to make sure that you ask yourself and encourage you to ask yourself this. Are you open? Are we open? Are you open? And you might be sitting there and saying, come on, what are you asking me if I'm open? Of all, hopefully you're catching it. Are you open to be the greatest work of God in this land for this age? Are you open? Are you available for that? Not just... <laughs> Not just to tell stories of our ancestors. Not just to tell stories of those who have paved the way. But that we would be the ones that would dare to pave the way for future generations. How, how long have we been saying that here? That we would pave the way for future generations as past ones have done for us. What the early church had done for us, as we, read, as we spoke about Acts chapter 2, are we doing that? for the model of what the church, the family, should really be going forward? Have we lost it because of man's system? And we need to go back so that it would become God's system, heaven's system here. Great conversation. Great truth to talk about. Not just to say, oh, remember when these days, but that we would say, look at these days that we're in. As we read in Acts chapter 2, and you read Acts chapter 2, you'll notice that such revival, it was not just for that church in Jerusalem. Because do you know that 3,000 people received revival in that moment? But do you know where, every, where those 3,000 people had to go? Most of them did not stay in Jerusalem. Most of them had to go back home. And they had to take the revival in their heart back to the death of their cities. And it was time for the revival in them to bring forth life in the death in them. <laughs> what is going on with the organism today? Come on, we are vital. We are the bride of Christ in this land who has revival in her to revive the dead man bones in the valleys. Amen? Amen. Such revival was not just for them, but you should write this down in your notes. Such revival is for the seekers of today. The seekers of today. Look up a seeker. Study what it is to really seek the Lord. Not just an attender. I can't wait for everyone to come back next Sunday. Because when you come back here next Sunday, I'm going to say this has nothing to do with attendance. This has everything to do with seeking him together. Not attending together, but seeking him. We should be living right now in a moment that we're not satisfied with just attending church, but that we are extremely desiring to be seekers of the presence of God. That's what we should be. So revival was not just for 2,000 plus years ago. Revival is for the seekers of today, not the ones who live Christianity in casualness, but those who burn, those who live to seek him, to know him, and to obey him today. Those who open the door because they've learned to hear his voice. I hope you just heard what I said. Those who open the door because they've learned to hear his voice. Did you just catch that phrase for a moment? Because do you know that everyone that knocks at your door is not God? So you need to be careful that when you hear the knock, you know the voice on the other side. You need to know that. Because knocking will happen, but when he speaks, does your spirit cry out to that voice? Does it recognize his voice? Those who open the door because they've learned to hear his voice, because they've learned and they've encountered that there's nothing greater than dining with him. Is that even biblical? Absolutely it is. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. I think Jesus, I think scripture does a great job telling us and Christ does a great job by saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But notice what he says next. If anyone hears my 
voice. Now, if anyone hears my knock, the Lord is knocking, but he wants to see who knows his voice. So I stand at the door and knock, but if anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come into him and dine with him. That is a picture of intimacy when he says, I will come into him and dine with him. And it's not just God, it's not just Christ being intimate with you. It says what? And he with me. It's also about you being and sharing that intimacy with him. So what is he saying? Behold, I stand at the door and knock, but he who hears my voice. I believe there's a knock at the door of the church, at the door of the, of the family. And as he's knocking, I believe these days that we're living in, He's really looking to see who are the ones that hear the voice behind the knock. We are open. You should write that down. I'm open. We're open. We're open for this moment. Everything that Christ did, remember the whole picture I drew in Jerusalem? And then all that brought forth the early church and all that brought us here we are today. Man, we're open. We belong to a lineage of some very amazing things. I mean, we belong, I mean, our, 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 our man, these Spiritual, these, these, these men who were spiritual and yet also struggling. These men who did great signs and wonders with the power of Christ, yet we see that they also had uh, some failings and some wrongdoings. And when we look at them and we could say, God, this is the time. I am open. We're open. The church is open for such a time. We're open. Let us not be persuaded by what the world does. And let us not say what the world says. And let us not act as the world acts. Let us not think as the world thinks. Here it is. The Holy Spirit leads us. We hear His voice in order not to fall into the fear of other voices. (laughs) So powerful what God is just speaking to my heart. The truth is, I, you know, I, I can't wait to see everyone next Sunday. I can't wait to open up the doors and see somebody that I haven't seen in three months. I can't wait for next Sunday. Because the truth is, yes, we've never been closed. We've always remained open. We've been saying that. We've been using that language. And many of us have. I'm not saying all of us have. But many of us have remained open. What I mean by that? In our homes, you stayed open. At your jobs, you stayed open. Before your family, before your friends, before your communities, you stayed open. And many have showed that the body of Christ is open, available, alive, and powerful still today, even when everything is asked to remain closed. And yes, next Sunday, our doors will open. And as our doors reopen, why will they open? We're going to open them. Open so that we can, what, encourage each other. We're going to open so that we can worship together. Like I said earlier, not just attend, but seek. We're going to open so that we could be united and no longer distant. We're going to open so that we can touch and hug each other with our smiles, with our words, as we do here at our nest so well, with everything. We're going to, we're going to do this as we serve each other in our service towards each other. We're we're going to open because we have such a, a, a vital role to play in the will of God for this land. Man, in Acts 2, there was a great move. And, and, and here we are as a church thousands of years later. We're constantly going back to Acts 2. Man, it's time that we, that we know the history and we know the teachings and we know the origin and we know some root things of Acts 2. But it does not mean that Acts 2 and even greater things can happen right now. Stop living in the glories of Acts chapter 2 and recognize, wait a minute, God has a glory for this church, for this family right now, here today. I wish there was two or more that would just believe that statement and with that attitude. The Lord wants to pour a great move. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says what? That they were in one accord. You know what another translation says? It doesn't use one accord. One, the other translation says they were together. They were together. Not distant, 
Not divided, not scared, not worried, but together. They were, and study Acts chapter 2. Study that time in Jerusalem and you'll recognize that it was not a rosy time. It was a time of heavy persecution. How heavy? They just killed their leader. They just crucified their leader. Okay, Stephen's about to be murdered. I mean, the early church, they're, they're, they're on the scope of the sniper, just, just ready to be blasted. I mean, I mean, this is who we're talking about, who are meeting together. And together, they were, in a, they were together in a time of their lives that they needed to be together. They needed each other. The organism had to unite in Acts chapter 2, piece by piece, head to neck, neck to shoulder, shoulder to torso, torso to arms, and so on. Every member had to come together and give to the body of Christ what it was meant to be. Amen. The organism had to be what? Together. The organism had to be together so that the pouring of the Holy Spirit would fall on them. What did Jesus tell his disciples? Don't move, but wait for Wait there in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit's going to come to you. He wanted them what? Not to separate, not to spread apart, but what? Remain together. The Holy Spirit is going to fall upon you. The organism had to be together for that outpouring. They, they, that, that they would be a healthy body, a healthy body. Read Acts chapter 2. Functioning, guess what the word is? Functioning together under the same spirit. Acts chapter 2. They weren't divided by different spirits. They were functioning together. If one had need, one would sell his goods to give to the other person in need. If one had food and the other one didn't, he would let go of his food and give his food to another so that they could have food. What does that mean? They were united in the same spirit. The Holy Spirit was working in them because they were together. Those outside, I mean, I mean, those outside... They, they, when, they, when they saw what was going on in the upper room, I mean, look at what happened in that passage. They went to see the commotion for themselves. They heard it. They were preached to. Peter stood up and preached. And they saw also the togetherness of those 120 whatnot individuals in the upper room. And they saw the togetherness of this unit. And they said, I want to be part of something like that. I want to, I want to, I want to do that. And they turned and they leaned into that. They turned into it and they repented and they accepted that group, their Christ. They accepted their Christ. And about 3,000 souls in this moment were added to that group of 120. 3,000, not three, 3,000 souls. They continued right after that as the church began to expand and grow, as the family, as the organism began to take its form. You guys see the organism growing? As the organism began to grow, what did they do? They continued under the apostles' doctrine. They knew how to submit. They knew how to honor leadership. They knew how to follow under teaching. They learned, they learned the word of God. They, they, they began to do all these things together. And it says, and they Fellowship, it was a fellowship of togetherness. What did they do? They broke bread and they prayed with each other. Keep reading verse, um, verses 43 and on. And what you will see as you read Acts 2, 43 and on, for the sake of time, I won't get into that, but you'll see the manifestation of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through their deeds. How do you know the Holy Spirit is living in that person? Man, their life demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is alive in them. As you keep reading verse 43 and on, I'm going to get ready to close. And, and as I get ready to, to, to end this and close I, 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 this message and, and stuff like that, I want to make sure that everyone that's hearing, if you feel like you're closed, if you feel like you're closed, and, and, and man, God has called me to be open. I'm, he's called me to remain open because the love of Christ, the works of Christ, the words of Christ, none of this closes ever. And if that's in me, I need to be open with this stuff. Man, we, we're the church and we're vital. We're vital where? What are we vital to? We're vital on this earth. And we're vital to this earth. Do you know that God has not taken us out of this earth yet? We're vital. There's a row. We're vital to the city. We're vital to our families. We're vital in the will of God for this world and for the people in it. Amen? All right, 
My last lap and we're done. We read, as I close, we read um, weeks ago, if you remember, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. Uh, I think it's still, it should be fresh in your memory. If not, you could go back and study it. But we learned as we focus on this passage in um, Acts 2 and everything that we just read. In Acts chapter 5, we learned that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Remember that? We, we spoke about that. And we learned that our lives are like salt among the people. Like salt, that if we become bland, our saltiness, how can it be restored? Salt without flavor, remember, is good. It's good for nothing if it loses its flavor. Salt is thrown and trampled upon by others. I, I, I could go on a rant there, but let's just keep going. Our lives light up the world and are to light up the world. Think about who we are. We're, the, we're to let others see our light from a distance. We can't hide a city that stands on a hilltop. Who hides a city on a hilltop? So who lights also a lamp for it to be hidden? Who puts on a, a lamp and says, oh, I'm just going to put it under this basket? No. You light it so it can light up the whole house. It's placed where everyone in the house can benefit, listen to this, can benefit from its light. Your light is not just to shine. Your light is also to be benefited from. Others are to benefit from your life. We don't hide our light. We let it shine brightly before others so that then, that then they will see the things and they will shine upon them and they will see the works of that and they themselves will give praise to our Father in heaven. We're open, church. So with this explanation, I, I close off in prayer. And it's that in the Old Testament, as we talk about us being a vital church, you look at Israel and Israel's purpose. You look at the Hebrews and Hebrews' purpose. And they were called out to live distinctly from all other nations separated from all other nations. Israel had to be a special people in the land that God gave them. And what do you mean by they were to live distinctly, they were to live separated? What I mean by that is separated, separate, they were to live holy in this world. That was their intention. You show the world what holiness lifestyle looks like. And that's what he called them in the Old Testament to do, to live in holiness. They were to focus mainly on the external matters of the law, and we know that, and remain holy, and do as the law says, but we see that they fell short. We see that they couldn't comply. It's not any different with us today. Jesus caused us today to also be holy. He caused us as well to this thing called holiness. Holiness that proceeds from the heart. Not just from the appearance, but from the heart. Holiness, listen, is the outcome of a personal devotion and loyalty to God. A man who is holy, a woman who is holy, is because they're devoted to God. A man who has to fake a holiness before people, it's because there's not a true devotion for God. It's be, that's now we start to talk about how we started with the Pharisee. And then the fruit of such holiness, man, listen to me. If, so important as we close this off, because I'm talking about we're open and we're the church and all this, but listen, the fruit of such a lifestyle is intended to benefit all the people of the land. Israel was to be holy and benefit all the nations around them. We are to be holy and benefit all. All the, all the people are to benefit from that holiness. Man. So as we read in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 weeks ago, and as I just paraphrased it today, I want us to know this right here, and, and this, is, this is why I chose to end with this, because this is so important. Recognize, as you read, and as you read Matthew 5, 13 through 16, recognize that your life has either a positive or negative effect. You could call yourself a Christian, but because of what you say, and because of the decisions that you make, you could have a negative effect on the others that are to benefit from the light that's in you. 
these people that act with they're impulsive and act on their people will benefit the wrongdoing of that. So what I'm trying to say according to Matthew 5, recognize the importance of your life in this moment. It's going to have a positive or negative effect. So what am I saying? Live responsibly. Live responsibly to bring the glory to God with all of your life. Amen? You are open. You are vital. You are a very important part in the church organism. You are very important to the body of Christ. Every single one of us. Whatever platform that he puts you in. We're open. We are a vital, vital church. Amen? Can you join me in prayer there for a moment? There's so much more I could say, but I wanted to sit with you with the Holy Spirit is hopefully ministering to every single one of you. Lord, we just love you today. I pray that every single one of us truly examines the condition of who we are, that we would examine our heart, the nature of what we do and how we do it and the reasons in which we do it. That Lord, that this message for this age that we're living in that we would really be the holy church a vital church a vital family that we would recognize that nothing about us is closed but that we are open and to be a benefit unto others a blessing to others I thank you Lord God because you're giving us a message here at Ernest. A message during this time not to easily be persuaded, not to easily chase what the world is chasing. But you're giving us a message as a family to chase what heaven is calling us to chase. To hear what heaven is speaking. You're calling our family to deeper things. And to be sensitive, not necessarily open the door to anything that knocks. But to open the door to the one who knocks, but yet we know the voice behind that knock. I pray that the dining with him and the dining of him with them would become and intensify so much more within our family. I pray that that dining, that intimacy, that devotion would grow ever so deeper. And that we would recognize the importance of who we are for the age that we are living in. With every phone call, with every person that we hang out with, with every social media opinionated post, with every comment, that we would learn to hear from God and be led by the Holy Spirit. And be the people of hope in this land for today. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we love you. We honor you today. It's in Jesus' name. We give you our lives. Yes and amen. Yes and amen.